the greatest enemy that we have. And uh, it has no idea what hit it. So God, I pray we would live in light of that hope and that confidence that we can have in your power and in the finished work of Jesus. And it's in his good name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So go ahead and take your Bibles. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Jonah to start this morning. While you're turning there, just a little bit of context for you. First, we're ready this week for the sound noises. I'm not sure who donated this this morning, but I'm appreciative of it. Last week, if you were here, our sound decided that now it won't stop. I'm just kidding. Um, this is from Mike now. <laughs> I hope it turns off. Stephen, can you believe this? This week we're going to have this happen, right? We're just going to forget that and watch it. <laughs> Thank you for being patient with us last week in particular. There we go. It's off. Good. Um, it was crazy last week. However, I think that God uh, allowed that for a purpose, don't you? I think what God did was allowed us to relax a little bit in what could have been kind of a tense moment for us and uh, allowed us to kind of walk through a, a topic that uh, can be uncomfortable, but actually last week I, I, <laughs> I can't say I had a great time with it, but I preached, so I have a great time when I preach, so that's fine. If you're with us this morning and you're a guest, I need to explain to you what in the world's going on. Um, uh, I did this last week too, but I think it's really important again this week. So this, this morning we are answering questions that our congregation has asked. We are not a church that is focused on um, certain issues above other issues. We are a church that is focused on the Word of God. We preach and teach from the Word of God, and we do it without reservation and without shame. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, as Romans 1 says. We believe it's the power of salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's, it's what matters most in all of life. It's about Jesus and Jesus alone. And as we try to put some of those things into practice, we have questions. We, we, we look at scripture and we're like, so how does that work? How does that play? And a lot of it is because we're trying to be normal people living a normal life in an abnormal culture. And so as we wrestle with that, we're trying to understand how do we answer, how would God speak to some of these issues? And so we have answered, if you're a guest with us and you've missed some of these, we have answered some, um, some interesting questions, some crazy questions, some difficult questions. We've, we've dealt, um, uh, <laughs> last week I got to deal with the role of women in the church. That was enjoyable. Um, my tires were not slashed, so thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, we have dealt with the role of the Old Testament for us today. I mean, it's such an outdated, outdated book. How does it relate to us? I mean, we, so we've dealt with a number of those things, and I still have the privilege in two weeks to deal with, so does God really choose people to go to hell? So that'll be a fun one. Make sure you come for that one. <laughs> um, and this week's question, um, again, I just want to make it abundantly clear that, that it's a question that was asked because it's important for us to be able to understand. And before I, I mean, you've already seen it in your bulletin, but before I move on to that question, it's going to be really important that you understand that the way I'm answering this question this morning doesn't apply to someone who is living in a LGBTQ lifestyle. It applies to you, church. Because the question is this, what is the proper attitude 
to have towards the homosexual lifestyle. I don't feel like it's my place or anyone else's to judge others. Am I wrong? Where in the Bible does it say we are called not to love the LGBTQ community? So don't, don't mistake, it, mistake this, this time together as a time where Frank is going to double and triple down on what we believe the Bible says about the sin of homosexuality. I'm going to make mention of a couple things just to set context, but I want you to be abundantly clear that this morning... I'm preaching to all of us in this room who know and love Jesus, and I'm looking at us the way God looked at Jonah. And that might be completely confusing to you, because Jonah is one of those books, it's like that book you set on your nightstand, and you start reading it, and you get about a halfway through, and it gets interesting, but you just don't have time to get back to it, so you never get back to it. Then you pick it up again like a year later, like, I don't even remember, so you start all over again, and you read about half of it. It gets interesting and good, but life catches up to you, so you don't actually finish it. And so you really don't even know how it ends. You, you know the first part of the book. It's, it's like if you were to watch that fantastic movie, classic movie, Frozen. And if you didn't watch the whole thing, you would think Hans was quite the man, Right? But if you turned it off midway, you would be sorely mistaken. You wouldn't understand the whole point. You would miss the point of the movie. And I think for most of us, we have missed the point of the book of Jonah because we haven't read the whole thing. You're familiar with Jonah chapter 1. You're familiar that God speaks to Jonah. And actually, God's words to Jonah in Jonah chapter 1 verse 2 is this. I want you to go to Nineveh, preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. God's command to, to Jonah is clear. It is concise. I want you to leave where you are. I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach against it. They are sinning against me, and I need you to preach. And Jonah says, Nineveh, all right, I'm going to Tarshish. He goes the exact opposite direction. He gets on a boat, and this is the part of the story we're all familiar with. Jonah gets on the boat, and he's tired from travel, evidently, because he takes a nap. But God, trying to get Jonah's attention, brings this huge storm, and the waves are crashing, and the wind is blowing, and the sailors on the boat that, that Jonah is, is riding on are freaking out. I mean, in their, in their hyper-spiritual culture, they believe that somebody on the boat has irritated their God to such a degree that that God, small g God, is punishing them. And so they're trying to figure out who it is, and they're, they're, they can't figure it out. They're tossing um, their cargo overboard. they got to lighten the load so they don't sink. And finally, the captain comes to Jonah in verse 6. Chapter 1 says this. What are you doing sound asleep? Get up. Call to your God. Maybe your God will consider us, and we won't perish. Jonah's awake, and sailors cast lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. And you can almost feel the tension of the moment as they're sloshing around in the boat. And the lot goes to Jonah, and every eye turns to Jonah. And Jonah's like, yeah, so, my God told me to go to Nineveh, and I'm going the other way. And those those sailors had to have lost their minds. Like, what, what are you talking about? And they continue to throw things overboard, hoping that they don't have to do what they're certain they're going to have to do at some point. And finally, Jonah says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it'll calm down for you. I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. 
Oh, but the men continued to row hard, verse 13, to get back to dry land, because they couldn't, because the sea was raging against them more and more, so they called out to the Lord. Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life. Don't charge us with innocent blood, for you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. And they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging. As soon as Jonah hits the water, the storm stops. And a fish comes by. And it happens to swallow Jonah. Whole. Not a good day. The fish is swimming around. Jonah's in the belly of the fish. It says he's in the belly of the fish for three days. And on that third day, chapter two contains the prayer of Jonah as he cries out in repentance to God, confessing that God is God and God alone gets to tell him what to do. And he calls out for the very mercy of God to deliver him from even the belly of the fish. And God's response in verse 10 of chapter two is this, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Still not exactly a great day. He just got puked up on land by a fish. But now God's got Jonah's attention, right? So Jonah heads to Nineveh. And we're told that Nineveh is this great city. It takes three days to walk across it. It's so large. And Jonah, trudging through the city of Jonah, being commanded by God in chapter 1, verse 2, to preach against Nineveh because their evil had come up before God, Jonah is a day into his walk through Nineveh, and he preaches this incredible message found in chapter 3, verse 4. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. That's it. No PowerPoint, no stories, no illustrations, no humor. Just straight up, 40 days, and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. It's going to be demolished. And the most surprising thing happened. The people of Nineveh believed God and they proclaimed a faith and they dressed in sackcloth and they, from the greatest to the least of them, and the king heard about what was happening and he cries out and he decrees this this thing that everybody should put on sackcloth, that everybody should sit in ashes and then he issues a decree. He says, listen, no person, no animal, no herd, no flock, no one's to eat, no one's to drink water. We're going to fast and maybe God may turn from his decision to destroy us. Chapter 3, verse 10, God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. That ends the portion of Jonah that all of us have read. We're so familiar with the disobedient prophet who tries to run away from God. We're so familiar with the guy who gets tossed off the boat. We're so familiar with the guy who gets swallowed by the fish. We're so familiar with the guy who begrudgingly goes to Nineveh with the, the stoic message of, in 40 days, you're all dead. And we've heard the story of how the Ninevites repented. So the question is, before we move to chapter 4, is Jonah doing stuff that's pleasing and acceptable in the sight of God? Because when you get to chapter 4, you get to watch Jonah, verse 1. Think about this. Okay, so, so I'll put myself in Jonah's position, not in the fish. I ain't going in the fish, but I'll put myself in his position as a preacher. Okay? I would love to be able to stand in front of people and say, with one sentence, I know you're all like, you couldn't say it in one sentence, Frank. True, okay? But I would love to have that ability to get up in front of everybody like, listen, repent and run to God. And watch hundreds of people 
in that moment, fall on their face and be like, oh, yes, absolutely, that's exactly what we needed. I mean, I would be ecstatic to see the effectiveness of the preaching of the word of God happen like that right before my eyes. And Jonah has that happen. And chapter four, verse one starts how? Jonah was greatly displeased and furious. Listen to his prayer in verse two. Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? See, that's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew, and it's so crazy that this beautiful psalm is being said in anger. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Okay, that, that would be similar to you looking at your wife, husbands, and be like, I knew you were going to cook a good meal tonight. I knew you were going to let me go out with the boys this weekend. I knew somehow you were going to convince the kids to mow the lawn for me. I can't believe you. I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding, faithful love, and someone who relents in sending disaster. Verse 3, so now, Lord, take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. The question in verse 4 is a masterpiece. Is it right for you, Jonah, to be angry? The Lord asked. The reason it's a masterpiece is because there's no answer. The story just continues on. God asks this question, and it just kind of hangs out there over Jonah, who is throwing his not-so-holy temper tantrum. And he's angry because these people of Nineveh have, have been experiencing the compassion, mercy, and grace of God. And he can't believe God would do that because these people de- deserve condemnation. They deserve damnation. They deserve to be destroyed. How I can't believe you would forgive them. I can't believe you would show compassion to them, God. So God says, is it right for you to be angry? And then, then this object lesson happens. Jonah, verse 5, he went to the east side of the city. He made himself a shelter, and he sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. See, Jonah is going to the east side up on a hill and he's sitting there pouting with his arms crossed, still hoping to see hellfire and brimstone fall from heaven on the Ninevites. Verse six, the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah and it provided him shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. And Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. Now the sun was rising, and God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. And he said, well, it's better for me to die than to live. And then God asked Jonah the question again, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about a plant? Jonah said, it is right, and I'm angry enough I should die. Hear the word of the Lord to Jonah. You cared about this plant, 
something you didn't labor over, something that you didn't even grow. Showed up in a night and it perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh? She's got more than 20, I'm sorry, more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals. Jonah is so very, very angry that this plant that had grown up and given him shade was taken from him. What God says to him is this, that, that plant, Jonah, you are so torqued about that plant. And that thing was only around for a day. It's not like you had time invested in it. Certainly not because you had energy invested in it, because you weren't the gardener. You didn't create this thing. You didn't water this thing. You didn't manure this thing. You didn't uh, weed around it. You didn't cause it to grow. I mean, you had no involvement or investment in its growth. Your love for it, your concern for this plant, has more to do with how it affects you. And how comfortable it makes you. And how uncomfortable you are that the plant's not there. So Jonah, if you feel as angry as you do about the loss of that plant, God says, can you imagine how I feel? Can you imagine how I feel about the Ninevites? These people are created in my image. I think it's, it's fascinating to me that in Jonah chapter 1, God says, preach against that city because their evil has come up against me. And in Jonah chapter 4, God says, yeah, preach against it, my friend. But remember to treat them with dignity. Preach against it. But do so knowing how I feel about them. Your pain, your irritation with how the Ninevites treat you is nothing compared to the heartache of God when I contemplate her destruction. And so when we properly declare the truth about sin, it doesn't minimize God's requirement to treat all people as image bearers who have dignity, value, and worth in God's eyes. We're required to show compassion as we declare truth. But too often, we're just like the pouting prophet. The pouting prophet who sits on a hill and still stanks like fish. I'm not a huge fisherman. Um, My kids and I did a little pond fishing when we were on vacation. Caught a couple of junk fish. It was fun. You try to get them off the hook, you got to squeeze on them, right? Well, not squeeze them, because that's like, that's not the way you're supposed to do it, okay? You're supposed to squeeze on and get the hook out, and then you get the worms and all that stuff. And what, what stood out to me this particular time is like, it doesn't matter how many times I wash my hands. Somehow I still smell like fish. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's, 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 it's the, I mean, it's, I even, I, I, okay, I even took a brush and scrubbed under my fingernails because the smell was driving me crazy, but I still smelled like fish. Imagine Jonah who sat in the belly of a fish for three days. The dude still smells like the fish that tried to devour him, and yet 
and, and he understands the only reason he's alive is because God moved and showed mercy and grace to him, and yet he's still willing to look down the hill and be like, but they don't deserve grace and mercy. Because I'm something. So there's a tension in the story of Jonah. There's a tension in our lives And there's a tension this morning as we seek to answer this question. And that tension, it's boiled down to this. How do you speak truth in love? Not in fear, not in arrogance, certainly not from some pretend moral high ground because none of us have a moral high ground. I wanna wanna tease out that tension just a little bit um, and, and then I, I want to make sure you understand the truth of that tension and what it means for us today. Um, take your Bibles. Go to, go to 1 Corinthians 6. There's <clears throat> a couple things I need to do just for clarity's sake. Um, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 6, let me say this at the onset. The I'm just going to look at one passage this morning that deals with homosexual lifestyle, and I'm going to be very blunt and clear. Um, our belief as a church, as we understand what it is that God has for us, is not built on proof texts. It's not built on just looking at one passage of Scripture. It's actually not even taken, sometimes you take two or three passages of Scripture. In order to understand what the Bible teaches uh, about this area, we've got to understand and and dive into a robust theology of sexuality. It starts at the beginning in Genesis 1, and it carries throughout. This morning is, that's not the point of this morning, so I do not want to get too distracted in that. Um, We did that as a church probably two years ago. I think it was the beginning of 2018. We kind of walked through that, so I'd encourage you, you can find that stuff online. But but that's important to know, okay? So, so while I jump to 1 Corinthians 6, I just want to use this as a launching point. I know there's all kinds of discussion that could happen here, but I think it serves us well this morning. The, the context of 1 Corinthians 6 is this. Paul is talking to a church that has lost its mind. The Corinthian church is so far out of bounds in so many different ways. And in chapter 6, he's talking to these people, and he's saying, what, what is wrong with you? You, you, you people, you continue to sue each other in court. You're bringing cases against each other. You're like, oh, he touched me. No, he touched me first, but he called me a name. He looked at me funny. I mean, that's the sense you get at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 6. It's like going on a road trip with your kids. Like, I will pull this thing over. Hey, did you know, this is kind of a cool side note. Um, when I was growing up, we used to be able to pretend way in the back seat that we didn't hear mom and dad, right? Do you know that there's this cool feature now? We have it in Steph's car. If I push a button, the Bluetooth puts it in the back speaker so they have to hear me. <laughs> How awesome is that? Now, to be clear, the thing I'm really looking forward to is one of them falling asleep back there. Wake up! I mean, that's going to be awesome. So anyway, sorry. Um, so, so Paul is, he's like daddy talking to the kids who are losing their mind in the car, and he's like, knock it off, knock it off, knock it off. Why do you keep touching each other? Stop touching each other. Wait, you can't yell at her for touching you when you touched her first. And that's his point. Wait, wait, you're cheating each other. You're stealing from each other. You're robbing each other. And then you're turning around and being like, I, I stole that from you, and now I'm going to sue you because you stole something from me. Of course he's going to. You people are acting like unrighteous children. And then he, he kind of launches in then, and he says, let me tell you about unrighteous 
children. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, verse 9. So don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, no idolaters, no adulterers, no males practicing homosexuality, no thieves, no greedy people, no greedy, greedy people, there we go, no drunkards, no verbally abusive people, no swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. What I find fascinating is that when we read that passage in 1 Corinthians 6, many, many, many people latch on to that middle section and say, practicing homosexual, see, there it is. So let me be clear. What 1 Corinthians 6 does teach is that homosexual sin and practicing homosexuality is serious. It it, it tells us that homosexuality is a sin. It says that, that Paul says that the active and unrepentant homosexual person who is practicing homosexuality will not enter God's kingdom. And Paul is clear, sin leads people to destruction. But, he also says clearly in that passage Homosexual sin is not unique. Church, please understand that homosexual lifestyle is not an elevated sin above everything else. Paul is making this statement. He says, listen, it's not unique. Yes, it's a sin, but so is greed. So, so, So is being verbally abusive. He uses the word drunkards. What's a drunkard? It's a day drinker. It's somebody who cannot get off the bottle. All of those things are sin too. Liars. Swindlers. Idolaters. Isn't it interesting we can overlook greed? You've never seen a church with a billboard that says, God hates greedy people. What's wrong with us? This passage teaches us that sin is universal. We are born sinners. Every single one of us. I don't care what flavor your sin is. Not only are we born sinners, we choose sin. We rebel against God in thought. We rebel against God in action. And because of our sin, we are separated from God. But the good news is this passage also teaches us that sin isn't inescapable. While we were separated, Jesus left heaven to bring us peace, to bring us nearness with God. Verse 11 tells us that. After that whole long list, Paul says, listen, I understand, but you need to understand, such were some of you. You were all of those things, but now you are washed. Now you are sanctified. Now now you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's not inescapable. So why has the church made this the big one? Um, All right, so just a little conjecture. I don't know. They don't consult with me before they go picketing things, I promise. I think part of the problem is as you read, particularly, we'll just use this passage in particular. When you read through it, you, you realize that, that that one in particular, the, the practice of homosexuality, is, is different than the rest on the list because in our culture today, that's the one that's being normalized. Okay, our culture's normalizing that one. Our culture still isn't normalizing alcoholism or verbally abusive people. 
And so when the, the, the culture seeks to normalize those things and the church tries to live out its biblical worldview, what the church ends up doing, and, and I'll be careful, I don't want to be too judgmental. I, I really do, so I'll be honest with you. I don't want to be super judgmental here. I want to really zing all of us in a couple minutes, so you're welcome, get ready. Um, <laughs> but I think what happens is, in a sense, in trying to, to, to carry that biblical worldview, they... They try to then hang their biblical worldview on a people who are either unaware of what that biblical worldview teaches or are just simply uninterested in it. And so it becomes tense, but I'm going to tell you, it is not the worst sin. The greatest sin has nothing to do with our sexual practices. The greatest sin is the rejection of Jesus Christ as Savior. The greatest sin is to say no to the gift that has been offered to you through the spotless Lamb of God as you seek to embrace your attempts to be good enough so that one day you can present yourself faultless and blameless before the throne. And the bad news is this, you can't. We all need a Savior. And we all need a rescue. Our greatest hope is Jesus Christ. Our greatest hope is not heterosexuality. You know how I know that? Because I know a whole boatload of straight people who are going to hell. (laughs) Ironic. My next point is speak the truth in love. (laughs) Mm. All right. We need to be sure that love motivates everything that we do and say. Um, let, me, let, me, let me go back. I skipped this inadvertently. Um, just quoting straight out of our Constitution, uh, our, our statement of faith. Our views on any issue flow from our commitment to God and to his word alone. So what God says goes no matter how inconvenient. And so this is our statement uh, in, as it pertains to this issue. We believe that marriage, as first described in Genesis and later affirmed by Jesus, is a holy institution established by God. It's the union between one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for a lifetime, symbolizing Christ's relationship with his church. We believe that God clearly teaches that sexual intimacy must occur only within that biblical covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Therefore, we believe that any form of sexual behavior outside the context of monogamous one-man-and-one-woman marriage relationship is sinful in the eyes of God. We must speak those truths in love and in grace. And this is also in our statement of faith. We believe that every person should be treated with compassion, love, kindness, gentleness, and dignity, no matter what views they hold on gender, marriage, and sexuality. Church, we are guilty, often, of extending grace to some people, but people who struggle with certain sins, we govern with different rules. (laughs) To joyfully uphold a biblical sexual ethic does not equal anger and animosity towards people. I'll say that in a different way. Jesus wasn't a jerk. (laughs) 
Do you think Jesus ever interacted with people with a different view of a sexual ethic? Maybe the lady at the well? Who's your husband? I don't have a husband. Hey, you answered right. You've had five, and the guy you're living with ain't your husband. That is not a biblical sexual ethic, folks. And how did he interact with her? With compassion. It's because Jesus taught us that every person deserves to be treated with dignity. He taught us that every person is to be treated as if they are your neighbor. Remember, Jesus commands you to love your neighbor as yourself. You know what I love about that story? Jesus says, okay, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. And the response is, well, who is my neighbor? And instead of answering the question, Jesus says, okay, let me show you how you should love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love? You love in a messy way. With time, with energy, with resources, that's what the Good Samaritan did. Took him off his planned course, and he invested in that one who needed help at that moment. He cared for them in ways that other people simply overlooked and ignored. Demonstrate love. But understand that unconditional love does not mean unconditional moral acceptance. Um, it's interesting. Our culture today has made some huge shifts in this. Um, even go back 30, 40 years, and you won't see this as much. I believe this is messed up, but I believe it all began with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I'm going to write a paper on this or something. Because in Willy Wonka, you meet this great character named Veruca Salt. And Veruca wants a goose that lays golden eggs. And Daddy says, all right. And you know what Daddy does? Pulls out the checkbook. That's what you want? No problem. Well, you can't have one, is what the crazy man says. Gene Wilder. What is that guy's name in the movie? It's Charlie. It's Willy Wonka, isn't it? <laughs> there it is I told my wife this morning I'm like I can't like having trouble keeping coherent thoughts in my mind just pray I don't say anything too stupid <laughs> my wife's prayer life needs some help I guess <laughs> oh, but, but Willy Wonka's like you can't have a golden goose she says I want one now and then she sings this song that has become the mantra for modern parenting. Give me what I want now. Don't hold anything back. I want it now. That means you must give it to me now. If you really love me, you will give it to me now. That, that, okay, A, that's not good parenting. We can talk about that later if you like. I can love you and withhold from you something that you so desperately want but that I know would be bad for you to have. But those things go together. And I, and, and I think it's important, just like that I can, I can love you and I can keep something from you, I can withhold something from you, just like that the, the Bible says, listen, you, you must do both. You can't separate showing somebody love and living in light of revealed truth. 
And we can't do that. We can't separate love from living in, in light of revealed truth. Okay, let me, let me you know, I'm going to wrap this up because I think this is kind of simple here at the end. Okay? We, we've got two camps that exist. You, you've got a camp over here that says, listen, if you don't support me, you hate me. But then you have this camp over on this side that says, if you don't get red-faced and angry, then you support them. Friends, neither of those is the heart of God. We're, 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 not, on, we're not on this side. We're saying, no, 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 that's wrong. The Bible teaches that's wrong. God's desire is not for that. That's wrong. And we're not on this side because we ain't screaming it. We're still saying we love you. I think the answer to this question, and I think I'm really just, okay, just I'll answer the last question first. Nowhere. Where in the Bible does it say we're called not to love the LGBTQ community? The same place the Bible says that you can work your way into heaven. The same place that says that, that you are uniquely not a sinner unlike everybody else in the world. What is the proper attitude to have towards the homosexual lifestyle? The proper attitude to have to somebody who's living in that lifestyle is the same attitude of the gospel. It's that glorious message that we can speak because we've experienced it. You do know what the message of the gospel is. You know what the words from the cross were, right? You are wrong and you are loved. You're wrong. I love you. God tells us we're wrong on the cross. He's so very clear. The wages of sin is death. Unrepentant rebellion means judgment. Our rescue required the death of his son. You are wrong. But then God says you are loved. While you were a sinner, Jesus died for you. While we were unrighteous, Jesus suffered in our place on that cross. Though we were even destined to receive the full wrath of God, Jesus welcomes us into his presence. I, I struggle with this question not because I struggle to find a right answer. I struggle with this question because I am going to get emails tomorrow that will break my heart. I struggle with this question because there are so many people in this room who forgot they got puked up by a fish. You 
You know what your sin cost? Spotless, precious Lamb of God laid down his life for you. And then he took it back up again when God robbed the grave. You don't sit at peace with God because you dress nice. Because you've been in church a certain number of times this year. Or because you're a heterosexual. You stand at peace with God because of the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. What would our world look like if we were a people who remembered from what God saved us? What would the world look like if we were a people who demonstrated love? What would the world look like if we were a people who were able to live within the tension of saying, you're wrong, but you're loved, and you're not going to get rid of me. May the world see a people who know and love Jesus in ways that we have never even seen. God, I pray for hearts in this room this morning, mine especially. Just so much. (laughs) So very little time. God, I pray that above everything else, we would look through all the, the, the certain topics and discussion and the questions, and Father, we would rest and rely on what your word says. And God, that today we would remember that what matters most is that Christ came to save sinners. I pray for our attitudes. I pray pray that our conversation would be seasoned not just with grace, but with love and compassion. Lord, break our hearts for what breaks yours. May we not be like Jonah. And may we not have to learn that the hard way. I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you for who he is and what he's done. Amen.